Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. ACAST recommends podcasts we love. Hello, I'm Dave Moore. And I'm Neil Delamere. And we want to let you know season three of our podcast, Why Would You Tell Me That, is out now. Each week, one of us introduces some unusual facts, and with the help of a genuine expert, we explain why they are so intriguing to us. It could be about anything like how you shower in the coldest town on earth. How would a 900-year-old ATM work? And can Formula One save the planet? We just have to justify one thing. Why would you tell me that? Why would you tell me that? Every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the world's best podcasts, including the David McWilliams podcast, I'm Grandmam, and the one you're listening to right now. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We're barreling into the holidays like a runaway sled on an icy mountainside. I'm curious to hear what you're doing to get into the holiday spirit. For me, I think I mention every time around this time of year one of my favorite parts of the Christmas season, the many delightfully frightful creatures and legends that seem to be centered on this time of year. The last few years, I think I've also mentioned, I've been making an effort to revive the Christmas Eve ghost story tradition, in my household at least, and while there are plenty of classics to choose from, I think this year I'll be diving into one of the amazing new anthologies that have been released in the last 12 months. Let's see, either... Human Monsters, which we just held the giveaway for, or maybe a revisit to Howls from the Dark Ages, which I mentioned several months ago. No easy task to pick. I think it'll be a close-my-eyes-and-point kind of situation. I'll let you know what I land on. 
What are you reading this horrible holiday season? Our most frightfully festive thanks goes out this week to our newest patron, Michael N. Unger. Thank you, Michael, for sending us some horrible holiday cheer. While it might not get you off of the naughty list this year, I'll make sure to put in a good word with Krampus and maybe he'll go easy on you. Thanks again, Michael. For those of you who already support us on Patreon, look for some long-overdue bonus tales coming your way. Classic stories of holiday horror to haunt your feed and make the long nights just a little darker. That said, if you're not a supporter, there's still time to sign up, so you don't miss out. Patreon.com slash Tales to Terrify. Head on over and sign up. We get a boost in support, you get some extra goodies in your stocking, it's a win-win. Again, that's patreon.com slash tales to terrify. As promised, we're wrapping up the last few weeks in the year by sharing the remaining runners-up and the winner of the 2021 Bram Stoker Awards, which took place earlier this year. We'll be spreading them out over the next few episodes to head into 2023 with a bang. Our first story this evening is a runner-up for the 2021 Stoker Awards from Cindy O'Quinn. Cindy O'Quinn is an Appalachian horror writer and author of three short fiction stories and one short non-fiction story that all went on to become HWA Bram Stoker final-nominated works. Her works can be found on Amazon. Children of the Night, join me for Cindy O'Quinn's A Gathering on the Mountain, first published in The Bad Book, July 2021. Mark 8.25 Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Mama died giving birth to me. Peace was not something I ever made my way to finding. How could I find it, or even forgive myself? When it came right down to it, my life cost Mama her own. Two big brothers, nearly double in size at birth, made it safely into the world. Tiny me tried to enter the world ass backwards and ruptured Mama's uterus. She was bleeding to death, but insisted on holding her baby girl. If only for a moment. Dad did his best by me. But as I grew, I looked more and more like Mama. I believe that to be the reason he took me to Beulah May and left me with her.
She was an Appalachian granny to her core. Caught more babies in her life than one could imagine, and worked a bit of magic, too. If she'd been there when I was determined to be born, she may very well have saved Mama. Things just happened too fast. My name is Hobeth Freeborn, and I started my mountain education at age three with Beulah May. Time slipped away in a hurry from then on out, along with the memories of my dad and two brothers. They faded into made-up stories I told myself to ease the hurt. According to Beulah, I had trouble with my eyesight. I argued the fact that I could pluck an apple from a branch up to 20 yards away with my slingshot. That's not the vision I'm referring to. You've got special eyes like your mama. Bluer than the deepest ice and the coldest, too. You should be able to look upon any man or beast and see their intentions. Know if they mean harm or not. You must see their true face, not the one they flash around in public, she explained. Beulah threatened to put spittle in my eyes on a couple occasions, so I'd get the vision she talked about. That never happened. But she did smear mud across my closed eyes until it dried. After that, she took me down to the spring and flushed my eyes with cool mountain water. But I didn't feel or look different. But other people sure looked different when I focused in on their faces. Bad people's faces always distorted like a TV channel that never came into focus no matter which way you turn the antenna. The mountain people were those I considered to be like me. Down-to-earth, hard-working folks who eked out livings the old way. The hard way. Harvest season was ending. That meant there'd be people coming and going. I felt a different kind of current in the air. One that carried a warning I could see. On gathering night, darkness fell out of the sky like waterfalls after heavy rains, and something bad was on its way. It was time for a gathering on the mountain, and the people, they did gather. Multiple generations of families came together. People came on foot, by automobiles, and several on horseback. They poured into the small timber frame building and packed together tightly. Their closeness caused an uncomfortable rise in temperature. Cardboard fans covered in faded verse swished back and forth, but did little more than move the stale air about. The folks pushed against one another to stake their place in line for a turn in front of the so-called healer. Mountain people weren't different from others who needed healing. They were willing to do just about anything to have their chance. It was my opinion that the man who stood before us was more apt to inflict pain and suffering than remove it. I could feel his bad intentions, and they soured on my sensitive stomach. The intensity of the heat blended with the people's expectation for the night's guest. It caused a stir of conversations to echo through the enclosure like tainted ripples against an infected shore. I wondered if the people, so like me, knew what was really going to happen at the gathering on our mountain. They wouldn't be so darn excited if they did. I smelled his wickedness as soon as his hand turned the doorknob. I remembered the no-good healer from his last visit. He was tall and slender, but appeared more hunched at the shoulders. Put me in mind of a gargoyle perched on a ledge, eager to pounce onto the next unlucky victim to walk by. He made his way to the front of the room, 
As he passed, the handheld fans picked up their pace. A thick, hanging odor. Like the pungent smells of ramps seeping from the pores of sweaty teenage boys in spring. Wafted from the guest. The stench only seemed to work the crowd into a frenzy. And it put me in the mind of a pack of half-starved feral dogs going after a meal. Fit only to feed one. And they were desperate for their share. I was just a teenager. But thanks to my mountain education, I recognized evil when I saw it. Beulah didn't like the smirk on my face and was swift to swat me upside the head. I watched his face as it blurred, creating a mutated toad effect. I held in a giggle to prevent another smack. Mountain folk were quick to latch onto hope no matter how small, on account there was so little of it to go around. The folks came with hope. Whether it'd prove a waste of time or not was yet to be seen. As for me, I already knew the man to be full of bullshit. I was sure it wouldn't be long before the mountain people commenced to speaking in tongue and flailing around on the floor like they had no control of their jerking bodies. Weren't no man like that thing slouched over the pulpit, claiming to take your sin, as well as your sickness, going to devour my sin or any other part of me, much less the ingrown toenail that was thumping like a hornet under the worn leather of my too tight hand-me-down Mary Janes. That was pain I was more willing to live with if it meant he didn't touch me. Word of the traveling healer's return brought out the pig lady from Piney Grove. And as always, she had her little dog clutched in her arm like a football. He would soon be howling along with the old-time mountain music that threatened to lift the rafters. Like the others, she wasn't about to miss out on the show the man was putting on. As for me, he brought an unforgiving darkness the kind of darkness only a mountain January held, and encased all in its path with an invisible layer of ice which threatened to choke the life out of all it sealed. There were some folks who knew it to be what it was. A show. It caused my heart to ache for the others who hung on to hope their loved ones would be healed. Their day of healing might come, but it wouldn't be tonight. And it damn sure wouldn't be by the wicked man who stood before us. I could see the deep-set wrinkles etched into the tanned leathery skin on his thin-framed face. Too much sun and too little hat-wearing left him aged a decade or more beyond his actual years. I saw the open sore at the corner of his otherwise dry lips, which leaked and caused a darkened track to run down the crook of his chin. My stomach churned and threatened to empty itself right there on the pew. I knew come Sunday there would be more than one woman sporting that kind of cold sore. He was laying his hands and mouth on every female he could. Not Beulah. She was stoic as she stared ahead, watching the man and his wild behavior. The hard woman who was raising me wasn't my mother. It was out of kindness, or an unspoken mountain rule she took me in when daddy couldn't look at me any longer. At least that was my belief. Maybe the truth was something different altogether and she'd tell me in her own sweet time. Things on the mountain had a way of running by a different kind of clock than most places, and I knew better than to push for answers. Mark sixteen eighteen. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, 
it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. I heard the rumors that had trickled down from Dowdy Ridge. I was almost invisible when I needed to be. And they never heard me talking about it. How they postulated these folks from Downey Ridge got up to things that weren't considered godly. Snake handling, for instance. I had a handle early on what was good and what was bad. Not even the gray line that blurred in between fooled me. One thing for sure was when the ones I recognized came off their ridge to do town business, everyone gave them a wide berth. That included the sheriff and his deputies. I had the notion, if I was ever to meet the Dowdies, well, I might just have more in common with them than their own neighbors. I dreamed one time that I was someone special. And when the time came, I would know what it was that made me so. After that dream, I shook all over for an entire day, like someone with the fever. Beulah cared for me gently that day and used her special herbs to prepare hot tea for sipping. That day, she let go of a couple things I imagined to be secrets. Like the fact that the dowdy snake handling was medicinal, not religious. And her root work, combined with their medicine, was the cause for no deaths due to poisonous snake bites on the mountain for over a century. Evidently, it was a passed-down gift. You wouldn't think she was the sharp-edged woman who sat next to me. The night went just the way I thought it would, until a couple of men I'd never seen, yet felt familiar, toted a wooden box to the front of the room. As they passed, I caught a glimpse of their eyes, piercing ice blue, pretty near the same as when I looked at my own in the mirror. They were in the back row the entire time, but their heads were down, or I'd have noticed those eyes. The crowd fell silent like dead air, and no one dared to move even an inch in their seat. It was like a game called Statue we played in school. The teacher would let us run a bit, and then she'd yell, Statue. Whoever she saw stop first was the winner. Tonight, I believed it to be one hell of a tie. These gatherings were a rare event. They weren't normal church meetings by any means. I knew there would be special people on account of what Beulah told me. You could mark your calendar there'd be a gathering first sign of spring and at harvest time, when root work was done. Word of any travelers would make its way to the mountain folk, and gatherings were arranged soon after. Sweat-soaked hairs on the back of my neck suddenly stood on end, as though my thin cotton dress had brushed up against electric fencing causing a chill to inch its way up my spine. I sat up straight and strained my neck to get a better look at the man in the box. The loathing I felt all night was gone. I was excited to see what happened next. I should have felt ashamed for feeling that way. But I wasn't. The real show was about to happen and I knew it. A voice came from the back. Fool us once. We can forgive you. But you try to fool us twice, and the snake will do. It was a trigger. Bare feet, boot-clad feet, big and small feet, and feet with cheap dress shoes. On all started stomping on the wooden floor. The noise was like thunderbooms inside my chest, hurting with each breath. 
Little clouds of dust circles escaped the cracks in the floorboards and rose like smoke signals. I focused on those smoke signals like someone had sent for help. Thinking help was on the way eased the hurt in my chest. Matthew 4-7 Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Beulah nudged my side, which caused me to jump. I looked at her. The stoic stare was the same, but she didn't say a word. She nodded in the direction of the box, and then gave me another nudge that just about landed me out in the aisle. Surely I wasn't the help I hoped was coming. I was just a scrawny mountain girl who'd rather run than be face-to-face with the fake healer. It must be the men. Or the box. And I was to get a closer look. I could feel every eye on me, burning a hole through the back of my head as I made my way closer to the box. Closer to the two men I did not know, but were so familiar I could almost hear what they were thinking. Almost. What I did hear was our hearts pounding, and all three were beating in the same time to some ancient tune, one that revealed itself rarely, like a blue moon. I was right in the middle of it wondering if those men were my brothers, and maybe they came to take me away after what needed to be done was done. My bone-thin legs quivered and threatened to drop me to the floor. The stomping ceased once I stood before the box. I heard the fake healer sniffling, but I didn't favor him with a glance. My eyes were glued to the box that seemed to breathe as I breathed. The good-for-nothing faker cried out, If it's snakes in that box, I can prove I'm the real deal. They won't bite me. Open the crate and I'll show you our Lord has placed a shield of protection around me. Nothing inside there can hurt me. I've been anointed. Plagues run from me. I pick up poison-filled snakes, and they do little more than wrap around my arm like a gentle hug. He let his head drop, chin nearly resting on his chest, tears and snot strung from his face threatening to break free of him, but never doing so. The two men stood at either end of the box and waited. I looked from one to the other, trying my best to read what their familiar faces refused to tell me. I turned to look for Beulah, but she was gone. I returned my attention to the box and how the weathered planks bulged from the weight of whatever was inside, pressing against them. A low rumble from the crowd carried from pew to pew until it reached me like a breath of ice-cold air. The words from before, and then some, came close to freezing the blood running through my veins. I pictured the mountain spring where we drew water, the way it looked to come February with icicles forming as soon as the water was birthed from our land. Fool us once, we can forgive you, but you try to fool us twice, and the snake will do. Best not tempt our God. Do what needs doing, Hobeth Freeborn. I knelt and touched the top of the box, thinking of how many times Beulah had said those very words to me. Best not to tempt our God. Was I fixing to do just that? I grappled with the idea of what would happen if I lifted my hands away from the box. The two men knew. I could see it ablaze in their eyes. And I was fairly certain. It wasn't the fake healer who tempted God by making his second trip up our mountain. He made a living off Appalachian communities similar to ours, 
selling forgiveness, fake healings, and hope. Reckon he'd never been called out on his wrongdoing. I felt the life within the box, squirming as it fought for room. When I moved my hands, the boards fell away, and she slithered free. With each flick of the tongue, the snake grew bigger until she was the length of the room. I made myself look the man in his eyes, which were stained red with devilry. I said, You had your chance to do right by us and failed. Time's up. You're about to find out what happens when evil returns to a gathering on this mountain. The two men held the fake healer down so she could taste his wickedness. Ignoring his screams, the snake continued tasting until the man was no more. Left behind were a pair of snakeskin boots. I thought on those boots for a bit. Figured it would have been wrong for the snake to eat them. Kind of like eating one of your own. And I knew all too well there was a Bible verse on cannibalism being wrong. One by one, the mountain people left the old timber structure without saying a word. There was nothing left to say. The deed was done. The two men picked up the scraps of wood. I imagined it was a special wood they'd used to remake the box. Before I could reach them to ask them any questions that bloomed in my mind, they slipped away into the darkness, just as the snake had done. Perhaps the gathering marked the time for me to know my whole story. I grabbed the boots and closed the door behind me. I'd grow into them soon enough. Beulah hadn't returned to her seat, but I knew she would be at home when I got there. And her belly would be full for a very long time. That was Cindy O'Quinn's Stoker Award finalist story, A Gathering on the Mountain, as read by Danielle Hewitt. Danielle is recording out of New Bedford, Massachusetts, where the people can be just as scary as any horror story. When she isn't recording, she tends to the two small children living in her house. They just won't stop screaming at night. Danielle is a graphic designer by trade, spending most nights photoshopping horror scenes out of your nightmares. Thank you, Danielle. Acast recommends podcasts we love. Hello, I'm Dave Moore. And I'm Neil Delamere. And we want to let you know season three of our podcast, Why Would You Tell Me That, is out now. Each week, one of us introduces some unusual facts, and with the help of a genuine expert, we explain why they are so intriguing to us. It could be about anything like how you shower in the coldest town on earth. How would a 900-year-old ATM work? And can Formula One save the planet? We just have to justify one thing. Why would you tell me that? Why would you tell me that? Every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the world's best podcasts, including the David McWilliams podcast, I'm Grandmam, and the one you're listening to right now. Our second tale tonight comes from Avi Burton. Avi Burton currently moonlights as a writer, 
and daylights as a university student. He enjoys studying theater and history. His stories often feature queer characters, revenants, and, on occasion, laser swords. You can find more of their stories in Escape Pod, Podcastle, and Apparition Lit, or find the author themselves on Twitter under at Avi underscore Y. Link is in the show notes. Listen with me, children of the night, to Avi Burton's Desquamation, a Tales to Terrify original. Kaz couldn't say when his boyfriend started peeling. Andrew had been changing for weeks, sinking sullenly into himself. He might have hidden the wound for a while or simply been unaware of it. That was the thing about decay. It crept up on you. Tuesday morning, light slipped through the window of their shared flat. Kaz was getting ready for work, and Andrew hunched bleary-eyed over a bowl of cereal. Kaz paused his coffee-making when his gaze caught on Andrew's neck. What's that? Andrew looked up. His eyes were red-rimmed, a stain left over from last night's drinking. Hmm? On your neck, Kaz pointed with his mug. A strip of skin curled off of Andrew's neck, leaving a raw and pink wound beneath. It looked like a stray hangnail. Oh, Andrew lifted his hand and smoothed down the strip of skin. It fit easily back into place. I don't know. Nothing. Does it hurt? Andrew stared at Kaz like he'd lost his mind. Why would it hurt? It looks like it hurts, Kaz thought, but shook his head and turned back to the Keurig. Andrew smiled. It's cute that you're worried, he said, reaching to take Kaz's hand. But seriously, don't. I'm fine. He pressed a kiss to Kaz's knuckles. His breath smelled like stale milk. Mm-hmm, Kaz said. But even as he watched, that strip of skin unfurled again, like origami coming undone. Unease settled in his chest. Are you sure you don't want a doctor to check it out? Kaz? Andrew's grip tightened. Drop it. Sorry. Kaz swallowed and took a sip from his cup, coffee going sour in his mouth. I gotta go to work. Good luck with the job search today, all right? Andrew dropped Kaz's hand. Yeah, whatever, you don't need to nag me. I wasn't, Kaz said, or I didn't mean to. I was just micromanaging me. Andrew rubbed at his neck. A bit of skin flaked off. I've got it handled, Kaz. I'm sure I'll get a call back today. Sorry. Andrew shrugged. Have a good day at work. It felt like a barbed statement. Kaz decided not to read too much into it. Andrew was just stressed about his lack of a job, that was all. He was under a lot of pressure. 
Kaz didn't need to add to it. He shut the door quietly, leaving Andrew slumped over his cereal. Kaz sat in his charcoal-colored cubicle, aimlessly filling out lines of code. He swiveled in his office chair, the dull hum of the air conditioning droned on in the distance. He couldn't get the idea of Andrew peeling out of his head. Kaz might have dismissed it as sunburn if it hadn't been winter, or if the wound hadn't seemed so raw. Normal, dry skin didn't look like this. Whatever was wrong with Andrew, it cut deep. It was like someone had begun unzipping Andrew at the line where his jaw met his throat. If he pulled that strip of skin, Kaz wondered, would Andrew come undone? What would be left underneath? Kaz brushed away the morbid thought. Andrew had said it didn't hurt, and he trusted Andrew. He always did. He typed in a few more strings of numbers, trying to soothe his mind. The repetitive tap-tap-tap of computer keys echoed all around the office. Kaz saved his work, closed his tab, opened up Google, and hesitated. What could he type? Is skin peeling normal? Yes, probably. Boyfriend is moody? Well, no one could be happy all the time. Infected wound on neck? How to stop accidentally making boyfriend mad? The problem wasn't Andrew or his illness, Kaz thought. The problem was him. He was the one always overstepping, always accidentally offending. It used to be easier. Like the peeling, he couldn't pinpoint the start of everything going wrong. About a year ago, Kaz had reluctantly attended a party for a friend of a friend. He'd sat in the corner of a crowded room, letting the toxic fumes of marijuana and the fog machine drift across his face. He'd never been very good with people. He had a knack for wallflowering, slipping from conversations before people noticed he'd left. This time, though, Andrew noticed him. Andrew cut through the crowd like a shark and strode right over to Kaz as if he was the only one worth caring about. Kaz had flinched from Andrew's gaze at first, his eyes were so intense, so concentrated on Kaz that it almost hurt, like staring into the sun. Then Andrew smiled, illuminated by strobe lights, and Kaz had no choice but to fall in love. Now, though, Kaz shrugged off the thought. Now, it was whatever. He settled in and checked his texts. He had seven missed messages from Andrew. Dread trickled down his throat. 11.49 a.m. I miss you, cutie. 11.51 a.m. Ugh, I hate being stuck at home. Don't have too much fun without me. 11.52 a.m. Kaz, pick up your phone. Your boyfriend needs attention. 11.55 a.m. Kazzy. 11.56 a.m. Seriously, what are you doing? Are you ignoring me? Stop being a prick. I know you're reading this. 11.58 a.m. You can be a real ass sometimes, you know. 11.59 a.m. Fine, whatever. Kaz swallowed and thought, shit. Andrew hated being ignored. At the beginning of their relationship, they'd each made a list of pet peeves and emotionally unavailable partners had been at the top of Andrew's list. Kaz's worst pet peeve had been miscommunication, which seemed to be happening more and more these days.
he hurriedly typed out a reply. Sorry, babe, I was working. Andrew's response was swift and sharp-edged seconds later. You're always working. Kaz sighed and set his phone on the table face down. He rubbed his temples, trying to ignore the feeling that he'd broken some crucial boundary, ruined yet another piece of their relationship. Andrew was so angry these days. Kaz wondered if it had anything to do with the skin peeling, the furious rash underneath. His phone pinged once, twice, vibrating against the table. Kaz grimaced and ignored it. He was a coward. He knew he was a coward. The issue would fester and rot like the scrape on Andrew's neck. But he couldn't. He just couldn't. That was all. Guiltily, Kaz set his phone to airplane mode and went back to work. When he got home, Andrew was wearing a turtleneck. Kaz shouldn't have even noticed, but the sweater was made of wool and Andrew hated wool. He said it made his skin itch. Kaz stared at the pale strip of neck peeking out above the collar. He was overreacting. He decided not to mention it. Andrew turned, blinked at Kaz standing uneasily in the doorway. Hi, he said with a broad grin, dimples marking each cheek. How was work? Any office gossip I should know about? It was all right, Kaz said cautiously. I'd rather be home with you, though. Andrew laughed and threw his arms around Kaz. Course you would, he said, squeezing a too tight hug. His hands had the texture of a bad peach. I'm way better company than those tie-wearing pricks. You are, Kaz agreed, returning the hug. You're not mad at me. Andrew pulled away. His eyes were blue, tangled up with long lashes. Why would I be mad at you? I, I don't know. Never mind, Cass said. He kissed Andrew, trying to feel relieved. The smell of wet surrounded him, a dark smell, soured and wrong. Andrew's lips were hot against his. Something flaked into his mouth. When Kaz pulled away, a strip of Andrew's skin had fallen off. A blot of blood bubbled up on his chin. Kaz gasped. What? Andrew said. He ran his tongue over his lips, raised his eyebrows when he licked the blood. A little overenthusiastic there, eh, Tiger? Kaz grimaced and spat the skin strip into his palm. It lay there in a puddle of saliva and blood. He crumpled it between his fingers and dropped it in the trash. Yeah, I guess. Sorry. He hadn't been overenthusiastic about anything. Don't worry. I liked it, Andrew winked. Kaz smiled weakly. This seemed like the Andrew he'd fallen in love with. Charming, easygoing, happy. Kaz didn't trust it. He couldn't stop staring at the blood. He disentangled himself and walked over to the fridge, flinching into the blast of cold air. You hungry? Eh, not really. Okay. Kaz rifled through the drawers. Hey, did you go shopping? There's a lot of meat in here. He picked up a steak, studied the raw, oozing drip of meat, then put it back. The flesh was a rough-textured purple. 
it seemed close to going bad. What are you planning to cook? I don't know. I had a craving, I guess. Well, I'll cook with it then, Kaz said, trying to be bright. We'll make a date night of it. Pretend we're at a fancy restaurant. Sounds good to me, Andrew smiled. More skin slipped from his mouth. The peeling was getting worse. The next morning, under the guise of caresses, Kaz traced patterns along Andrew's back and searched for fault lines. Where his fingers touched, Andrew's skin frayed like fabric falling apart. Some of it flaked onto the pillowcase. Andrew didn't seem to notice. Kaz carefully extracted himself from the covers and went to take a shower. A bit of Andrew was stuck under his fingernails. Worry slipped down his throat. Kaz examined himself for his own cracks. He was fine, he was whole, as far as he could tell. His skin wrinkled in the water. The worry didn't fade. He dried himself off and got dressed. When he returned to the bedroom, Andrew hadn't gotten up. He was sitting hunched over on the edge of the bed, arms lying limply in his lap. Kaz wondered if Andrew had been drinking again. He hadn't smelled any alcohol last night. Just rot. Hey, sleepyhead, Kaz said. Andrew grunted and turned away. You all right? Andrew scowled. Kaz crossed the room and took his hand. Talk to me. You didn't say good morning, Andrew said. When you got up. Kaz blinked. I thought you were asleep. Well, I wasn't. You didn't even check. Sorry, Kaz said, feeling the familiar swell of guilt overwhelm him. Good morning. You didn't ask me how my day went yesterday either. You always do that. You've been so distant lately. Andrew reached out. Kaz obligingly took his other hand. Bits of skin drifted to the carpet. It's just work, Kaz said, settling back onto the bed. Andrew was warm. If he closed his eyes, he could almost pretend everything was the same as it had been in the beginning, when things were better. How was your day, then? Is something bothering you? No, Andrew answered. I just like it when you ask. Kaz sighed. Andrew's grip tightened. What? Nothing, Kaz answered. It's not a big deal. No, you're annoyed. What is it? It's... Kaz had to choose his words carefully. It's frustrating, he began, when you make me ask questions but don't have an answer. I don't make you do anything. Well, you sort of asked me to ask, if that makes sense. Really, though, it doesn't matter. Sorry, I want my partner to care about me, I guess. Andrew's voice went sulky and sour. Sorry, I want you to put a little effort into my life. I didn't mean it like that, Kaz said. Of course I care about you. We're soulmates, right? That's what you always say. You don't act like you care. You're always at work. You never answer my texts on time. You don't even ask how my day went. It's like I'm an accessory to you. Some shiny little toy to put back on the shelf when you're bored. I'll do better. Cass said. Andrew's embrace surrounded him, soft and smothering. I'm sorry, Andrew. I'll do better, I swear. You love me, Andrew said. It sounded like an accusation. Right? 
I love you, Kaz echoed. Andrew smiled and kissed his cheek. His skin made a sound like paper. Then I forgive you. That was how the days, then weeks, passed with that uneasy equilibrium. Kaz was never quite sure what he would say to set Andrew off, but it didn't matter because Andrew always forgave him. Andrew said he loved Kaz, would die for Kaz, that Kaz was his one and only soulmate. Somehow, Kaz always felt like a liar when he returned the sentiment. The peeling continued. Kaz learned to stop mentioning it. Andrew's neck became more wound than flesh. At the worst points, Kaz could see the raw red of muscle throbbing with veins underneath. The peeling spread to the rest of his body. Kaz kept finding piles of skin flakes around the apartment. He swept them into the trash without a word. He worried, of course he worried, what caring partner wouldn't. And he was trying so hard to be a caring partner. Anxiety burned in Kaz's chest at night while Andrew snored beside him. He researched what he could but found nothing useful. He filled their fridge with meat to satisfy Andrew's cravings. He bought moisturizers and lotions that went untouched. With every touch, every kiss, Andrew seemed to fall further and further apart, but he was determined to ignore the rot, and nothing Kaz could do would change his mind. Kaz had brought it up only once. When he finished speaking, Andrew stared at him for a long, blameful moment. Then he slammed his hand on the table so hard Kaz flinched. Andrew stormed from the room. Kaz never mentioned it again. Kaz bought steak to apologize for his transgression, even though it strained their budget. Andrew ate his raw. It might have continued on that way forever, if Kaz hadn't seen the texts. It happened by chance. Andrew had gotten up to go to the bathroom and left his phone unlocked. Kaz, dutiful boyfriend, had never looked through Andrew's phone. He didn't even know the password. Andrew knew his. He wouldn't have ever picked it up either, if his name hadn't been in the message. Six words. Unknown number, 9.18 p.m. Seriously, lol, just dump Kaz already. Kaz flinched. Dread settled in his chest, thick as syrup. Reluctantly, he picked up Andrew's phone and read. It was worse than he could have imagined. Every mistake had been made into an attack. Every flaw became fatal. He scrolled through weeks of Andrew blaming, bitching, berating Kaz to his friends. The responses were equally brutal, but Kaz couldn't blame them. From their point of view, he was basically an abuser. Kaz's throat grew hot. He couldn't breathe. He clutched the phone with shaking hands. The world dimmed and blurred. He had never been forgiven. All this time, Andrew hated him. He'd been doing everything wrong. Kaz buried his head in his hands. He wanted to crawl out of his skin. He wanted to be anyone else but the monster Andrew had made him into. Babe? Andrew stood in the doorway, a concerned expression on his face. A long piece of skin dripped from his wrist to his forearm. What's wrong? Kaz shook his head. His throat choked his words. 
he gestured with Andrew's phone. Andrew leaned forward and plucked it from Kaz's hand. The blue light made his wounds even more garish. I see, Andrew said, face softening. His skin sagged a bit from his jaw. Come here. He settled onto the couch, pulled Kaz close. Kaz flinched away from his touch. Don't be like that, Andrew urged, moving closer. I love you, Kaz, I do. But you're human like the rest of us, and sometimes, well, you piss me off. You're not mad at me for venting to my friends, are you? No, Kaz rasped, chest tight. Course not. Good, Andrew said. His chapped fingers traced Kaz's lips. I can't believe you don't trust me. I trust you. But you went through my phone, Andrew said. That's not what a caring partner does, is it? Shame rushed through Kaz. He blinked tears away. No, I'm sorry. Hmm, you keep saying that, but I don't believe you. Andrew dug a nail into Kaz's cheek. Do you love me, Kaz? So much. The words were dry in Kaz's mouth. You're my soulmate. Andrew leaned in. Prove it. When their lips met, Kaz tasted rot. He ignored it and kissed harder, running his tongue along Andrew's teeth. The smell of stale milk enveloped them. Kaz clutched Andrew's face in his hands. Skin came away under his fingers. Andrew moaned and ran a hand through Kaz's hair hard enough to hurt. Kaz bit Andrew's lip. There came a wet crunch. Blood filled his mouth. Gasping, Kaz pulled away, spat out whatever had snapped off. Andrew stared back at him, gaping half open in horror. Andrew's lower lip was gone. It was like someone had taken a butcher's knife and hacked off his mouth. The wound was jagged and imprecise. Teeth marks surrounded the edges. Blood dripped down his jaw. Andrew tried to speak, but couldn't. Bile rose in Kaz's throat. He clutched the soft, slippery lip in his numb hand. I have to... Kaz couldn't finish the rest of the sentence before sprinting to the kitchen sink. He gagged into the basin, choking up his horror and the contents of his stomach. He hurled the lip down the drain. All he could smell was rot. He thought he too might be decaying, splintering the same way as Andrew. Tears dripped down and mingled with the vomit in the sink. I can't take it, Kaz thought, gulping for air. I just can't do this anymore. Kaz cleaned the vomit from the sink. He wiped the blood from the couch. Andrew disappeared and then reappeared with a bandage over his mouth. It didn't do much to stop the wounds from seeping in. His phone lay on the table between them, a weapon neither of them wanted to wield. The silence was heavy and static. Kaz watched his boyfriend from the corner of his eye. Andrew sat frozen on the couch, digging his fingers in between the cushions. He might as well have been a statue, a vicious piece of decor. This isn't the Andrew I knew, Kaz thought. This isn't the Andrew I loved. 
There was a cold feeling in his chest and his mouth hurt. He wondered half-heartedly how he'd let a stranger into his house. He wondered where the old Andrew had gone. Maybe it had been a facade. Maybe Andrew was always going to peel away. Maybe Kaz had made a mistake somewhere down the line, crossed some irreparable boundary, and had doomed himself to the rot. Or maybe not. Maybe it wasn't his fault at all. Kaz took a deep breath. I'm going for a walk, he announced. Andrew didn't blink. His response was muffled by his bandage. Kaz took it as assent. He pulled on his coat, laced his shoes, waiting for Andrew to stop him. The silence of the house was slick and sweaty. His heart hammered against his chest, even though he knew, he knew he wasn't doing anything wrong. But he still felt guilty nonetheless. Kaz hesitated in the doorway. He clutched the brass knob in a white-knuckled fist. Andrew said nothing. He might as well have been dead. I'm going, Kaz announced. Andrew's bandage crinkled. Kaz stepped out into the hazy night, streetlights glowing in the distance. Wind ruffled his hair. The blood dried to a scab on his chin. The smell of rot faded. Kaz shut the door firmly behind him. His shoulders shook with relief. Andrew stared at him out a window. He looked like an unwrapped mummy. Kaz lifted up a hand and waved. I'm never going home, he thought. I am never coming back. The streetlights winked behind him as he left. That was Avi Burton's Desquamation, as read by Andrew Gibson. Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming, and he remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson, or, for the more romantically inclined, Blake Lockhart. You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in the Narrator Nook and the Haven Discord servers, links to which you can find in the show notes. Thank you, Andrew. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Orion D. Hegre, Paul Belcher, Amanda Gottfried, and Kathy Robinson, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. 
every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs. It's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we scare up festive frights with more Tales to Terrify. Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.